Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unsafe Space. I'm your host, Carter Laren, and I'm joined, as normal, by Carrie Smith. And Hi, today Carter. we are very, very, I'm kind of giddy. I'm excited to talk to a very special guest, Dr. Charles Murray. Uh, Dr. Murray holds the F.A. Hayek Emeritus Chair in Cultural Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. He first came to national attention with the publication of his book, Losing Ground, which has been credited as the Intellectual Foundation for the Welfare Reform Act of 1996. In 1994, uh, The Bell Curve, a New York Times bestseller he co-authored with the late Richard Hernstein, sparked heated controversy for its analysis of the role of IQ in shaping America's class structure. In 2012, in another New York Times bestseller, Coming Apart, Dr. Murray described the nature and causes of the cultural polarization that, by 2016, would shape national politics. In his latest book, Human Diversity, he describes recent developments in genetics and neuroscience that are transforming the social sciences. He has a PhD in political science from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and a BA in history from Harvard. You can follow him on Twitter at Charles Murray. We'll put links to books that you can buy uh, and his website on American Enterprise Institute below. With that, uh, welcome to Unsafe Space, Dr. Murray. Well, I think this is the first time I've talked about these topics since I was on with Sam Harris. Uh, I hope that uh, you don't get the same reaction Sam did, but we'll find out. Well, uh, I'm okay. I'm okay with that. We can get that reaction, and uh, that'll be fine. That'll be fine. So I I'm wondering, can we, you know, before we delve into kind of technical matters, I'd like to get your opinion on your place in American culture. I mean, you're, you're writing, to be honest, your writing is some of the most careful and nuanced that I've ever read when people write about scientific topics. It, you're extremely sure. painstakingly careful about how you word things. Um, and yet, uh, your work is routinely misrepresented. You're consistently vilified. Uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center calls you a white supremacist who uses pseudoscience. Um, and uh, I guess my question is kind of broad. Why does the left hate you and your work so much? Uh, it's not uniquely controversial, I don't think, um, it, among experts in the field. But they seem to really, really hate you. Uh, what's up yes, with that? Do. Uh, I'm, I'm probably the worst person to ask because <laughs> I'm, I'm too close to it. I can tell you, well, first when Losing Ground came out, a long time ago, that's 1984. There was uh, a, a, a New, New Republic article uh, by a guy named Greenstein, who formerly headed a, a left-of-center uh, think tank, and the title of the article was, Is Charles Murray a Fraud? And so that, that I got some of that same reaction all the way back there. A, a couple of things, I think, have gone on. And by the way, when you talk about yourself, but I'm sorry, I apologize if it sounds fatuous when you're talking about your own work this way, but here's my own best, best guess. Losing ground kind of broke the rules because I said that the social policies of the 1960s were bad because they hurt poor people. And they especially hurt poor black people, and they most especially hurt young poor black people. And the problem wasn't we were spending money on welfare queens. It was that we'd introduce a destructive set of incentives uh, into the black inner city. Well, people on the right aren't supposed to say that. People on the right are supposed to say we've got to quit uh, supporting vice and we've got to quit you know, supporting the welfare queens. And so in the way I was poaching on the left's territory, and that really irritated people greatly. 
Then in 1994 with the bell curve, Dick Kernstein and I got into a completely different level of vitriol. <clears throat> there was yesterday uh, an article in the New York Times uh, excoriating Andrew Sullivan for publishing an article for by Dick Kernstein and, and I about the bell curve 26 years ago. Yeah. And was it Ben Smith? I think the author was. Anyway, uh, he was saying he just couldn't he couldn't uh, take Sullivan seriously. Twenty six years wow. later, right. he didn't even he write the article. He just published. He it. He didn't even write the article. No, he, he, right. he, wow. he just uh, published it along with a bunch of critiques. But but the story I was about to tell was that before the article came out, uh, there was a lunch at the uh, New Republic, which is common. The author of an article comes in. You have the staff sitting around and you talk over brown bag lunch. And I was in the room with people who I had formerly looked upon as collegial people with whom I disagreed, but, you know, we were some kind of friendly uh, intellectual adversaries. And, and very quickly into that lunch, I looked around the room and people were looking at me with hatred. That's the only word I can use. And I was stunned, you know, because I thought I knew these people. And uh, there, you, you strike a nerve when you talk about IQ and race that is sensitive by an order of magnitude more than any other topic I can think of. And then when you add genes into that, you have a, just an incredibly explosive mix. It's, it's I, I think, a big topic. Yeah. Can I jump in? And I, um, so my background is, is such that we... On the show a lot, Carter and I try to pull apart my old ideology. I was what I call a social justice warrior for about 20 years. And I went to Duke University. I was a biological anthropology major, a women's studies minor, which is where I kind of got indoctrinated into what used to be my old belief system. And your name was known in my circles, but I wasn't, I never read the bell curve. I thought I knew everything about it without reading it. It was sort of this, <laughs> this yes, this received opinion that you get of, uh, and and so I I thought of, I I apologize first of all that I was so easily led and, uh, maybe just young and afraid of of thinking outside of my echo chamber or of engaging with something that I I held opinions on that weren't my own, and so I when I heard your name, the bell curve, it was said as if it was a known fact that you were a racist motivated by, by racism to, to try and cherry pick data to present um, a racist point of view about IQ. And I, I was just wondering if you could tell me that's my, my first introduction to you was completely wrong. And uh, I've since read uh, I've read half of Human Diversity. I'm about halfway through it. I'm really enjoying it. That's good. I, That's good. I, uh, we're gonna, we're currently doing it for our book club selection for Unsafe Space, and I wanted to ask you: Do you seem to, do you have an idea about what the most commonly held misperception about you is, or are there many? Is that, is that the one? Now that's really a question I can't answer. I'm, okay. I'm serious. I can't answer it. Uh, okay. I, I mean, I, I would tell you that what initially uh, I thought was, you know, I was married for 13 years to a 
half Thai, half Chinese woman in, in Thailand. I lived in Thailand for six years. I have two daughters that are half Asian. And I thought that it was kind of hard to accuse someone of being a white nationalist if they had mixed race kids. Turns out that's not true. Yeah. Because uh, if, if you can, the, the white nationalists are well known for doing things like marrying Asian women, uh, but that doesn't make them any less white nationalists. So I'm also a libertarian, uh, which means not only am I not a white nationalist, uh, I don't think the government should get involved in all sorts of things that it's currently involved in. I, I don't see how you can be a libertarian and be a white nationalist. So the accusation, which is just tossed around routinely, that I'm a white nationalist really mystifies me. And I guess, very casually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I I want to, I want to, I do want to get into uh your human diversity book a little bit because um, I think you present a conservative, an academically conservative, not politically conservative, and an academically conservative overview of the current state of science uh, regarding three pretty radioactive topics, right? Uh, gender, uh, race, and and class. Um, can you can you kind of first tell us your motivation for for writing the book, and then I kind of I do want to go through at a high level, maybe, uh, your thoughts on each one. Oh, the, the motivation I, I've got to confess was I'm just fascinated by this stuff. I mean, there is so much new that's gone on in genetics and neuroscience and it was topics I wanted to know about and nobody had written about them in a way that uh, satisfied me. And so the best way to, to read a book that you want to read and isn't out there is to write it. You know, that's I've done that with a couple of books. I did that with Human Accomplishment. Uh, so basically, I was just fascinated by it. But another aspect of it is that I really think this is going to revolutionize the social sciences because it's not just race and IQ. There is enormous resistance within the social sciences, especially sociology, especially anthropology, as you remember from the old days uh, at Duke. Uh, to talking about heritability of all sorts of traits. They, and the, the, the role that genes plays now is really not controversial scientifically. For example, if you go back to IQ, uh, is the question of genetic differences between races still up in the air? Yes, it is. Is the question of the heritability of IQ still being debated? Not by anybody who's serious. Uh, the estimates keep moving up, but it used to be that, oh, it was maybe 40 to 60 percent. That's the that's the range that Dick Hernstein and I used in the bell curve. And now it's it's at least half. And the thing is that as uh, people get older, it, the heritability rises. So it's around 70, 80 percent for adults. Now, you cannot do good social science when you know that all sorts of human traits are highly heritable without incorporating that into your analysis. You can't enter as independent variables in a regression equation, a whole bunch of things about income and parental education and uh, the uh, quality of the neighborhood and so forth, and just leave out anything having to do with the role that uh, who your parents were played genetically in, in who you are. 
So the social sciences are going to be dragged kicking and screaming into this because progress is so fast in these areas. And I was trying to get, I was trying to take my colleagues in the social sciences and grab them by the shoulders and say, come on, first place, you aren't going to be able to publish a journal article in 2030 that doesn't take genetics into account. It's time to, you know, time to understand this. And second, don't be afraid of it. It's yeah. really fast. I like how you said in the, that people are, are going to look back at this perhaps and, and just kind of shake their heads bemused because uh, the fear that constrained people from writing about the things that we know, that we already know. Yeah, we already know. I mean, I, I relate to it a little bit, though, because I remember when I first read The Bell Curve, I mean, you know, I had a very... Um, Obviously, my view, my my knowledge base has changed a lot since I first read the bell curve. But I I definitely had kind of a Lockean tabula rasa uh, assumption about humans, um, and it was very hard <laughs> to read that that was wrong, and I needed to change that assumption. And that there's some environmental, but uh, that you know I couldn't be an environmental essentialist anymore, uh, that that was just not a tenable position to take. And so I imagine, um, I mean, if you look at, for example, just look at the, the radical trans movement and the kind of the, the postmodern application of gender theory, um, that we have happening right now, they are essentially environmentalists, uh, environmental essentialists, right? And so, uh, to, to suggest that there's any kind of genetic link uh, even though it, that's 100% true, there is a genetic link, is, uh, is quite emotionally difficult for people to, to get over, even, even though the, the reason, reason should bring them there very easily. I, I've got to say that uh, I went through the same transformation. If you go back to losing ground and look, look at the last chapter, I think that when it comes to education, I have kind of a throwaway line. I'm making the case for uh, for for charter schools and and uh, schools that parents you know have a lot more control over what goes on, and I think I have uh, uh, a line to the effect that if you gave vouchers so parents could send their kids to the school they wanted to, that the difference in racial difference in test scores would disappear very quickly, and that was said by a person who really took for granted what you took for granted, that if you got the signals right, if, if you got the incentives right, and policy was sending out the right messages, that you could affect drastic, large, positive changes. And that the only problem with the 1960s was we got the incentives wrong. Well, within a half a dozen years after that, um, I, had, I had had to come to grips with the limits on what you can do environmentally. Yeah. And it, that, that is, it's, I'll, I'll say one of the most disturbing things in, in your book to me is as a parent, uh, and I don't think other parents are going to like this very much, but, um, you know, a, as a parent, it turns out that, uh, we don't have as much control, uh, and I'll, I'll just use it in the, you have 10 propositions that are very carefully worded. So I don't want to use sloppy language, I'll quote one of your propositions, which is, the shared environment usually plays a minor role in explaining personality, abilities, and social behavior. 
And what that kind of translates to is, uh, hey, your parenting isn't as important as you think it is. That's kind of depressing. <laughs> I don't know what yeah. to do with that. I don't like it either. Um, this is a case where I took a lot of persuading. And, you know, my wife and I will still talk about this. And her argument, which I think has some basis in fact, is you can't make your kids smart uh, by the environment and you can't make them good, but you can make them reasonably nice. <laughs> that that if, you, if you, you can raise them, so maybe the kids don't have some of the personality traits you would really like, but you can at least make them sociable. You can socialize them. And, and the, I, think there's a, I think that, that it, those are a couple of the the traits that you can have more effect on. And by the way, the numbers uh, in the big twin studies tend to support this fairly limited role. However, there's another way of looking at it. Do you have more than one child? Uh, not yet. <laughs> okay. Uh, there's an old joke about everybody's an environmentalist until they have their second child. And the reason for it is once you have that second child, you can see within weeks after they're born, very different personalities, very different personalities from the first child. And you also have this strong sense that there's nothing I can do about this in terms of <laughs> the, the, the fundamental characteristics of the child. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. So let me let me I want a little bit of optimism, though. So here's what I'm thinking. I'm just going to propose this. So we're saying that, you know, you're saying that the science shows that the shared environment don't have a lot of control over. But there's this non-shared environment component, which is quite significant, and I don't really know how to wrap my head around what that non what are all the components that go into that non-shared environment, and is it like what I'm thinking is it is it like like happenstance singular events that actually have that move the the needle in some meaningful way, and should a parent be trying to construct singular events that move the needle, or or it, like have a, 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 an environment that encourages more of the, the right kind of happenstance events that just might move the needle? I, I don't know. I, I want to do something. You should know, you should know <laughs> Mr. Murray, that Carter's the man who schedules intermittent frivolity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want some kind of control. I want to do something. Here, here's a way to think about the non-shared environment. First, um, a lot of it's measurement error. Originally, it's called E in the ACE model. Right. Uh, for those of uh, our, our listeners who are familiar with that, and the reason it's called E is because it stood for error. You have the shared environment, and you have the genetic background that you can partition out algebraically, and what's left over is the non-shared. So don't forget the fact there's a lot of error in there. The second thing is, go back to when you were 18, 19, 20 years old. You're in college. There, I bet there are a bunch of ways that you sort of acted consciously against the influences of your parents, consciously against the influences of where you grew up. Uh, you maybe were trying to get out into the big world if you'd grown up in a small town. Who knows what they were? But there's a period that in that period of life, you were doing a lot of things which in, were kind of way out of the envelope. But, you know, the cliche about as we get older, we get more like our parents. Right. It is statistically true. And, and so a lot of the non-shared environment, I think, is not just happenstance. But it is 
it is a life it, it is part of life to try to buck against the genetic reigns that uh that that making genes sound way too powerful here but you're sort of struggling against the nature part of it and pretty soon you get back to who you actually are underneath um the reason it's called non-shared environment is because we don't know how to manipulate it so trying to come up with happenstance events that change your kids (laughs) isn't going to do much much good either not to get philosophical, but is there, is there free will in here somewhere? I don't know. Oh, I don't think there's any problem in finding a room for free will. All of the, the statistics we're talking about explain, if it's really powerful analysis, explains maybe 40% of the variance, and that's really good. So that leaves a lot that's unexplained. Um, I've never gotten upset about free will as an issue because, A, there is so much that's unexplained, and B, as my Plato philosopher teacher said in my first year at college, uh, we all behave every day as if we had free will. So why not believe it? And and so so that don't worry about that. Don't worry about genetic determinism, but also don't think that you can uh, um, sort of do an end run around the non-shared environment. I'm afraid you can't. Hmm. Damn it. <laughs> um, well, I wanted to, I actually, if you have more questions about the book, the question I have, I, I wanted have to get back. Book, I know you do, but I wanted to get to the um, controversy that, cause I had not heard your name for a while. And then in 2017, sort of when I started leaving my old belief system and, and there were a lot of things that were, that came to, there were a lot of things that played into that, but one of the things was noticing what was happening on college campuses and the thing that happened to you at Middlebury in 2017. And I don't know if you're tired of talking about this or if you can explain briefly for our audience uh, the series of events there at that school. But for me, it was very disturbing. And I, it, it, it kind of worked a little bit to, to shake me a bit awake as to... Uh, my my old belief systems uh similarities to a cult maybe so can you talk a little bit about that and had something had that ever happened to you before i mean i know you'd been protested before oh yeah back in back in the days when i was giving some lectures after the bell curve uh i had uh some protests and they were usually kind of choreographed which meant that we knew in advance that there were students that were going to come in, they were going to be carrying signs, and that also at some point they would get up and leave. And they did. Uh, and so the protests were there, but I also got to get my lecture. Middlebury was brand new in so far. And by the way, I was giving a lecture on the themes from Coming Apart. Coming Apart has absolutely nothing to do with the uh, with the controversial aspects of the bell curve or anything else I've written, uh, so I was giving a lecture about something that had nothing to do with the things that I was that the protesters were upset about, uh, but they were upset because I was a eugenicist and a white nationalist and all the rest of that, and not only that they were going to keep chanting and screaming all afternoon, and I was never going to be able to talk, and uh, then. Later on that night, when we were leaving the building, 
it turned out that Antifa and some of their allies were outside and uh, we basically got mugged on our way to the car. And uh, Professor Allison Stanger, who had been moderating the, the event, was seriously injured. Yeah. Uh, I was not. And, and it was... Uh, It was the first, it was one of the early examples of, if you pardon me saying so, a, a pretty nerdy guy getting that kind of treatment. I mean, you'd had, uh, what's his name? Uh, the rabble rouser, the very Milo. inflammatory guy. Milo. The Milo, yeah. Yeah, he'd, he'd rouse, I mean, come on, he was trying real hard to get yeah. that kind of reaction. <laughs> and, and so I was, I was sort of the first of, uh, of the innocuous people in terms of my behavior and my presentation and so forth, we've got that kind of reaction. That was pretty scary, yeah. but it's nothing compared to what's going on now where yeah. um, the degree to which the degree to which you cannot even whisper to your colleague any, some, you know, doubts about uh, things is, is really, I'm exaggerating there. Okay. That's hyperbole, but it's pretty bad. Yeah. You certainly cannot in a faculty meeting, make a data-driven statement that upsets the woke. You cannot do that. You're in trouble if you do. Well, this leads to a question I was going to ask you about because, it, it, you know, we see that the college students in Antifa <clears throat> hate you and are willing to be violent. But that was a question that, like, I, you know, you talk about you, you talk about the state of science, of, of current science. Let's, say, let's just use genetics as an example. Um, in a way that shouldn't really be controversial among among experts in that field, like you're not you're not grasping at straws or making wild claims. You're you're taking a survey, and this seems to be the consensus at, at the current time in this field. Are you are you ostracized even by the experts in the field, or the experts in those fields kind of quietly say like, "Yeah, you're right. It's we'll just you know we can't talk about it." Um. In the first place, if you're talking about human diversity, that book has not been reviewed by the New York Times. Well, it had the, uh, the Daily New York Times had a review written by a fine arts uh, person with a fine arts degree, which is not really the background you're looking for in somebody no. to review <laughs> university. Uh, but not in the Sunday Times book review, not reviewed in the Wall Street Journal, uh, not reviewed in the Washington Post. It's uh, so, in one sense, there has and that's kind of interesting because I have not written a book for a long time that has not gotten reviewed in all three places. Okay. So that was kind of interesting. I'm glad to say that I have had a number of geneticists, including some who've said this on a blog, on their blogs, and another who's going to be saying it in a review that will be coming out shortly, who say that in terms of the way I'm, I'm quite precise and accurate in my discussion of genetics. And that, that gratifies me a lot. And I've had some similar comments from neuroscientists about my presentation of the, the, the state of, of neuroscience. So my problems are not with geneticists or with neuroscientists, as far as I can tell. It's with social scientists. But even they have kept very quiet about this book. And part of the reason is perhaps I made it too long and dense. Um, occasionally I wonder if it's just much more convenient not to give it any publicity. Because I do say some pretty 
inflammatory things in a quiet way about differences between males and females and what we're finding out about uh, genetic differences in different uh, ancestral populations and what my appendices <laughs> I have one about that should be you know having the LGBT people wanting to burn down my house and I have another one where I talk about uh, uh, the greater male variance hypothesis that uh, got the kid out at uh, Google fired yep. and the rest of it not a peep yeah. so of uh, I have not had a problem with the scientists that I have been summarizing and characterizing that haven't had a problem yet at all. Well, that's, that's informative. It, you know, it, it, uh, it means that there's not really arguments against what you're saying from a scientific perspective. There's just a, a lack of a, or maybe a, a fear to even bring the topics up, uh, among social scientists because, you know, they don't want to have to, to have that conversation. You know, you mentioned in your book that you think polygenics will defeat the orthodoxy of those environmental essentialists eventually that in the social sciences that they're going to, they're going to have to accept the predictive power that you think is going to happen with polygenics. And you make a strong case for that. But the question that I was asking myself was, well, they seem to ignore sex differences pretty effectively. Uh, like, what makes you think that more data in another field is going to convince them? Well, by the way, this, the, the staying power of the denial of sex differences has been really impressive. I grant you that. It is also uh, undergoing a lot of evolution already. So that uh, things that were... You know, some years ago, early 2000s, uh, Janet Hyde came out with the um, hypothesis that of small differences between men and women. She, by the way, she writes in a very civil, uh, intellectually uh, rigorous manner, and she was making the case that yeah, there are lots of differences on a lot of traits, but they tend to be small. And now there is growing consensus that well, yeah, if you've got seven different comparatively small effects, but they're all conceptually related, that adds up to a very big uh, combined difference. And and there is, I think, a shifting consensus in the social sciences about that. I also think there is a shifting consensus about differences between men and women in terms of their, their interests. Uh, yeah. One of my own favorite parts of the book is where I take a, a long look at the study of gifted, talented youth that was started at the University of uh, uh, Johns Hopkins uh, by Julian Stanley. And the reason I love that data set, because I followed these people now for 30 odd years, is that everybody in that data set had an IQ of about 140. I mean, so you had you completely sidestep any issues of, of are men smarter than women and that kind of thing. Everybody in this uh, data set was easily smart enough to do anything they wanted to uh, intellectually. And furthermore, they had grown up in the Washington, Baltimore, Philadelphia area to upper middle class parents uh, it, during the 1970s. And uh, at which the time, you aren't old enough to remember it. I was a parent at that point already. Gender neutral toys were really big in that in that group. And so was raising your child in gender neutral ways hadn't percolated down to the rest of America. But in those circles, you had 
young women or girls at that point being raised to at, a, at an era where they were saying you can have it all you still have the differences in the uh, tendency of women to head toward if they go to sciences they, they head toward biology instead of pure mathematics uh, if they often go into the social sciences or they go into the humanities the guys tend to go into uh, the hard sciences and I sense a comfortable, certainly comfortable in terms of this cohort of women who were in the study, but I think in the larger ones saying, yeah, guess what? Men and women do have different profiles on average, the old overlapping distributions thing where, yeah, there's a difference, but you have lots of, lots of women who uh, love to study physics and you have lots of men who love to study poetry, but you've got different needs and the distributions overlap. Uh, so, yeah, the, the issue about sex differences and denial of sex differences has been very tenacious. It's it's crumbling. As it, as for polygenic scores, here's going to be the problem. I think uh, the social sciences use regression as sort of their workhorse, and uh, I can't go into it in any detail. But for those who aren't familiar with it, basically you've got a thing you're trying to explain called the dependent variable. Uh, how much education you get and you you have independent variables which are supposed to explain it you know how much income do your parents have and so where do they live uh, so forth and so on polygenic scores are going to be another variable that you can enter in with all of those standard environmental variables and every time that someone does it in a published article it is going to make a huge difference to the results so you've got social scientists who are doing the standard list of topics they've always done, but you've got to do a literature review at the beginning of the article, and it's going to be a technical literature out there, which if you have not included, if you haven't taken genetics into account, at some point everybody's just going to say, well, you know, but we know what happens when you take genetics into account, and it sort of overthrows all your conclusions. Given the way that the social sciences work on policy-related issues of the kind I deal with, I don't see how they get around that. On the other hand, I'm this wild-eyed, idealistic optimist, I guess, in some respects. But I don't think by 2030, I don't think you're going to be able to make a living as a social scientist who doesn't deal with that. One of the most interesting parts of the, the chapters on sex differences were, I think, is, is the fact that you mentioned that study after study found that average sex differences between men and women increased or was higher in the countries that were more egalitarian, where things were more equal, where women and men were, choo were free to choose what they wanted to pursue. And yeah. maybe not constrained by any social ideas of sex or gender roles. Um, how how has that how how have those studies been received? And I was surprised that there was more than one of them actually, because I, I thought it would be something controversial. Like let's not look at this again. Yeah, it's well, it's, <laughs> it's 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 very counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. Everybody, and I suppose if I'd thought about this before I started reading the studies, I would have gone along with everybody else. Uh, 
would assume that some as some aspects of male-female differences are environmental, because we all know from experience that that uh, young women were discouraged from going into certain fields. My older sister went to college in the late 1950s in Ames, Iowa, Iowa State, and wanted to uh, be an architect. So she was sitting in a calculus course or engineering course as a freshman. And the professor from the podium says he doesn't think uh, girls have any business being in engineering. That's an environmental pressure. And it was real. And you'd say, well, in, as, as countries become more egalitarian, some of that difference is going to go away. It tur- and, and, per- and by the way, I think that did happen during the late 1960s and through the 1970s and into the 1980s. I think that the trend lines in the choices that women made educationally and occupationally are clear evidence that women had opportunities open up and they took advantage of them. But then there was kind of a new equilibrium that was reached. So here's what happens. As you briefly said, it turns out that men and women are more different in Sweden than they are in Bangladesh. You know, they're more different in Norway than than they are in uh, Saudi Arabia in terms of personality traits in particular. And so there has been a lot of scrambling. And by the way, as you said, it's not one study. This has been replicated now four or five, six times, always comes out the same. There is a plausible explanation. If you're a really bright woman who uh, can be an engineer in Bangladesh, you are also living in a country where being an engineer is one of the few really well-paying jobs that are available to you. It's much more attractive economically than than becoming a, a secondary school teacher or you know uh, being in humanities. So you may prefer verbally oriented occupations, but you got the skills to be an engineer, so you become an engineer. You're a woman with exactly the same skill set in Sweden. You can make a living doing what you want to do a whole lot easier than a woman in Bangladesh, so you go with the way you want. However, i got to add something to this, Carrie. turns out with a lot of these changes, it's the guys who do more changing than the women do. Yes, that was interesting. Yeah, which which is not always a good thing, but... uh, but but that does seem to be the case. Fascinating. It's a. This is what I would say to people who are thinking about whether to pick up uh, human diversity. Is this stuff is really interesting. And now the fact is that uh, as as you mentioned, um, I have very carefully worded propositions in there. You know, I probably bent over backwards too much to. Uh, to make the prose innocuous. But if you look, if you read between the lines, there's really some very exciting stuff in that book. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I do think it's fascinating and it makes, you know, whenever I find something like this, it makes me want to <laughs> go get, maybe I should go get a degree and whatever. Maybe I should go take a class in genetics because it's just, there's so much, I don't have time to do all this, but I'm one of those kind of people who just, you know, now I want to go study genetics, um, but let's let's get into the biggest, most radioactive topic <laughs> because I want to. Um, I'd like to talk about it. I'm going to talk about race, but I'm going to use your so the way that 
just for people who haven't read the book, you have 10 propositions that you've carefully worded so that you're that you'll defend these propositions, but not summations of them or distortions of them or, you know, someone's paraphrasing. So I'm going to I'm going to read two of the race propositions and um, and I think they're fascinating and have wide reaching effects. One is human populations are genetically distinctive in a way that corresponds to self-identified race and ethnicity. And two is evolutionary selection pressures since human left humans left Africa have been extensive and mostly local. Now, both of those things actually are not controversial to someone who knows nothing about anything and just lives in the world and sees people behave in ways and 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 knows maybe a little bit about evolution and goes, well, yeah, of course there's pressures. I mean, there, there must be pressures because people turned out differently. Like it doesn't sound like those are controversial, but in in academia and in modern uh, mainstream right now, they're extremely controversial statements. Let's pick them apart. Let's start with the first one. There is a claim, which you agree with, that the word race has kind of racist origins um, and is, is not the right word to be using. So you're using this term um, ancestral populations, I think. Can you tease that out a little bit and sure. explain to people what the difference is? Uh, by, by the way, if people listen to this and say race is a much shorter word than ancestral populations, I agree with you. But it's also true that the word race carries a lot of baggage with it. And so what you do genetically is you don't start with the races that exist out there and then see if you can see genetic variations that correspond to them. What you, what you can do instead is take genetic variants the problem here is there's such a specific technical language. I'm going to use one thing called SNP, single nucleotide polymorphism. A SNP can take on more than one form. That's what creates variation among people. Most of our most of our bits of genetic information are the same for everybody, but their SNPs are what create all the variation. And I will say very briefly as well that all complex traits are determined by thousands of SNPs. Uh, just about most of the bar. Okay, so what you can do is take a cluster analysis of uh, variants of these SNPs and just see how they cluster in a statistical sense, in a, in a factor analysis sense. Well, guess what? They cluster in ways which correspond. If, if you want five clusters, those five clusters are going to correspond to people whose ancestry was sub-Saharan Africa, uh, Europe, uh, the Americas, uh, Oceania and uh, and Asia. If you then want to look at ten or twelve clusters, you can increase the number of clusters. What happens is it doesn't transform uh, the picture. What it does is simply make it more detailed. So you can discriminate between East Asians and South Asians and so forth and so on. Uh, the proof that this works is the fact that you can send a hundred bucks into Twenty Three and Me and get back a profile which says you're 65% Swedish and 22% Italian and so forth and so on. And the reason they can do that is that this science, hate to use the phrase settled science, but this is, this is in the genetics world, been there, done that, this is old news, uh, doesn't surprise anybody. But the fact is, it's really easy genetically to take people, a sample of people, you've never seen them, 
and you can say this person is uh, European origin, looks like a European, this person is Sub-Saharan African, and you're going to be right 98, 99% of the time. Okay. They That's, even gave me my Neanderthal percentage. <laughs> they, they do now. By the way, you've got to take some cool. of this assault because, um, uh, you know, if, if it turns out that somebody says you're 3% Melanesian, don't go looking for a polyamorous relationship that a great grandfather had when he was out in Tahiti. Uh, what's happened is probably there is a, a, a portion of your, your genetic profile uh, which could lead to that conclusion, but it's a small proportion. And, and so it, it's right about when the 65% that's Swedish, yeah, that's a pretty solid number. The details can get uh, tricky. Okay, so that's, that's the first of those that were genetically distinctive in ways which correspond to ancestral populations. And people who get excited about that are also people who or upset about it, probably also have gotten their profile from 23andMe and haven't sort of, the nickel hasn't dropped as to what's going on here. The second one is the really interesting one. Um, and that is that since humans dispersed out of Africa, there has been considerable evolution and it has been very local. A uh, bit of background here. You had Stephen Jay Gould, uh, who was, you know, author of uh, *Mismeasure of Man* and a bunch of other things, who was very successful in persuading a lot of people uh, that, and, and by the way, it was generally accepted at that time that evolution is such a slow process that the sixty, seventy thousand years since humans left Africa is not enough time for anything important to have happened. And the Did reason we, sorry, you could I'm sorry, say, I don't mean to interrupt, but I have a question about that. I've always had a question about that. Why was that the consensus when it's very clear that there was some evolutionary pressure because there are traits that are visible? So clearly some evolution happened. Why is it this why was it this weird orthodoxy that like, well, only that and nothing else? We're very sure that there could be no other evolution except for yeah. that evolution. Yeah, for example, even something, well, the phrase that somebody like uh, Stephen Gould would use was with skin color. And he say, we know now that it's literally only skin deep, as if the changing of skin color was a case, well, if you've got a lot more sunshine down on the equator, you're going to have darker skin than if you're, well, it turns out it's not nearly as simple as that, but you could do that. Well, we also knew that lactose tolerance was way different uh, for Caucasians and further populations. That's a fairly complex change. We knew that sickle cell anemia exists in Africa. So I could, there, you're right. There was a there were a bunch of of reason, There are a bunch of uh, known differences, uh, but it was sort of said. Well, that doesn't get to cognition, though. That can't or personality. Those are simpler. Well, that was never very strong. But people believed that, and it was easier to believe that because evolution that's driven by random. Uh, mutations is really, really slow. And what has been discovered over the last 20 years, especially 25 years, is that there can be changes in what's called standing variation much more quickly. So you're not waiting for a brand new mutation whereby a SNP does something different than it's ever done before. You have uh, a variety of 
of SNPs that are associated, let's say, with something like thriftiness, a trait, the trait of thriftiness. And they've been there all along. They evolved for whatever reasons. They had other uses for the human survival and evolution. But in a hunter-gatherer culture, being thrifty doesn't make any sense because the meat's going to rot in a couple of days uh, and you don't have many possessions to begin with. You invent agriculture, what happens? All at once, being thrifty has all sorts of evolutionary advantages, both in sexual selection, more likely to attract a woman if you've been thrifty and are prosperous and are a good, you know, a good bet for a, for a partner. Uh, but also simply, you can get prosperous in an agricultural society in a way you can't get prosperous in a hunter-gatherer one. Well, you can have rapid, by the way, we have not proved that thriftiness genes have changed, all right? I'm using that as an illustration, that you can fairly quickly, you can get major changes. And by the way, we already know that's true from all sorts of uh, animal husbandry things that have been going on for centuries. And the famous silver fox experiment that was done in Russia, whereby they, they chose silver fox generations for tameness, they bred deliberately for tameness, and they got within a relatively few number of generations dog-like silver foxes. So that's a major change in the, 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 the received wisdom in genetics now, that there has been a lot of change since humans left Africa, and it's been quite specific. It's, it's occurred differently in populations that are now located in Europe than it did in populations that were in East Asia, for example. Right. And this comports with, I mean, I, I know you've avoided evolutionary psychology, which we can talk about maybe why. Uh, but um, I, I was speaking with an evolutionary psychologist a couple of years ago who explained that actually from an evolutionary perspective, it's much cheaper evolutionarily to change behavior than it is to develop a new physical trait. So if you see a population where there's been pressure enough to develop a new physical trait, it's very likely that there's been, that behavioral changes happened well before that because Behavior is actually very cheap evolutionary to turn on and off. Yep. Yep. And, and just really quickly, I did avoid evolutionary psychology in the book because I know exactly what would have happened had I put it in there. Uh, that people could have sidestepped all of the things I was saying about changes in the science and say, oh, more of these just so stories where men come up with these reasons why they're promiscuous and they're driven to it by evolutionary pressures that aren't their fault and that kind of stuff. The, the success of uh, the critics of evolutionary psychology and demonizing it as just those stories is very sad because it's one of the most exciting branches of, uh, of, the, social, of, of the sciences out there. Yeah. So I, I, guess, I guess the next question is, given what you're talking about, given the fact that there is... Um, that there are ancestral populations that are empirically derived at without preconceived notions of where they are. And they, they kind of map roughly onto race, not exactly. Um, and given that we know there's evolutionary pressure that has been, as you would say, extensive and mostly local, the result is just, just to clarify for people, the result is what, and then what do we do with that? <laughs> that that's, those are the big well, questions. here's where. Well, why don't you uh, read the third of the propositions if you have it right in front sure, of you? Sure, I do. There. I do. The third uh, one is 
Continental population differences in variants associated with personalities, abilities, and social behavior are common. Yeah, uh, that's pretty opaque. Okay, here's the story. There have over the, as recently as 2015, not very long ago, the total number of genetic variants that were known to be associated with IQ was numbered on the fingers of one hand. I think that was true in 2015, maybe it's 2014. We now have well over a thousand variants associated with IQ that we were familiar with. We, we have, I'd say we, I, I haven't done any of this. Um, the geneticists have hundreds of variants for virtually any personality trait you want to mention. Uh, a lot of, of cognitive uh, ailments, all sorts of things. So in each of these cases, You've got several hundred at least variants associated with these statistically. They still don't explain a lot of the variants yet. They're predictive, but they've, you know, there's it's early days yet. However, what you can say is, all right, you've got these variants that are associated, let's say, with IQ. What happens when you plot the frequencies of these, of the alleles and these variants? Sorry for the jargon sort of just a two-dimensional plot. So on one axis, you've got people from sub-Saharan Africa or that ancestry. On the vertical axis, you've got people who from China. Insofar as cognitive profiles are the same, the allele frequencies for those variants associated with IQ should cluster very close to the diagonal. Uh, they should be very similar for both populations. Well, it is true that they are within continents, so that if you take a tribe in Kenya and a tribe in Nigeria, which are very different to begin with, and then if you take a, pop, a, a sample of Americans who live in the western United States who are African-American, and you plot their allele frequencies, the correlations are in the range of 0.8 to 0.99. 0.98 to 0.99. They're virtually, virtually perfect. You take a population from China and a population from Kenya, and the correlation is likely to be on the order of 0 0.7, 0 0.74, 0.75. That's still a high correlation by the standards of the social sciences. A correlation of that size means that when you take a look at that scatter plot, they're all over the map. If you were saying there is no genetic source of personality and cognitive differences, you have to assume that these very different allele sets of allele frequencies all balance out. Well, that's just not very likely, especially when you can already do the analysis that says, here are, I keep on talking about IQ, I could say extraversion. Let's say the, the, the variance associated with personality extraversion, uh, the ones that give a plus to that, they in one population uh, outnumber the other population 6 to 40. So you have way more variants that are going to promote extraversion in one population than in another population. That then it becomes in, almost impossible that they balance out. So what I'm saying in that chapter, and uh, by the way, one of the commentators on Twitter has referred to this as intellectual cowardice because I was too, too conservative. I'm saying 
there are going to be a lot of genetic contributions to personality traits and cognition out there that separate what we've ordinarily in the past called races. And we are just sticking our heads in the sand if we don't recognize that. The fact that that was also said in the New York Times op-ed piece by David Reich, an extremely highly respected geneticist who specializes in ancient genomes, doesn't seem to register with people. Uh, he was being no more provocative than I was and no more, no less. He's just saying, folks, calm down because this is something that we're going to be confronted with. We don't need to think it's the end of the world because it's not. It's going to be overlapping distributions. There are going to be minor changes in a lot of, but come on, quit this hysterical denial that there's any genetic source of difference among the groups we call races. One of the things you mentioned in your in the book about, um, you very clearly state at one point that, that because there are genetic differences, it doesn't mean that there's a moral attachment exactly. to, uh, or a moral, moral value attached to any of these genetic differences. And I find it really interesting that we seem to attach a moral value to um, certain things like IQ, but we don't attach a moral value or we don't seem to attach one to athletic ability or, uh, you know, how fast someone can run. (laughs) And, and, and I'm, I'm struggling to understand why that is. Why is it attached to certain things and not others? Do you have any, not that you can answer that, but. The dirty little secret is that there are a whole lot of people in the intellectual elite what Dick Hernstein and I call the cognitive elite, who do think that the measure of human worth is IQ. Okay. They'll never say so. They'll okay. never say so. Uh, but uh, my wife has a wonderful way of putting it. She herself is a PhD and you know went to you know, Oxford and Yale, so she knows this world very well. And when I was getting all the criticism about IQ wasn't really all that important, she said one time, You know, when people are putting on their makeup or shaving in the morning, if if they're in an academic faculty, they aren't worried about their publication list versus their colleagues. They're worried about how smart they are relative to their colleagues. Intellectual ability is the coin of the realm in academia. Uh, and, And you folks are involved with academia. If you want to argue with me, you can. I think that's probably a true statement. And so... Why do people attach a moral value to it? Because an appalling number of people in the American elite put way too much importance on IQ as a measure of a person's worth. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think you're 100% correct. And I think that the scary thing for them would be to say, you know what? Your IQ is not something you can be proud of because it's not. there's no action that you took to deserve it. It's a you, you can't be any more proud of it than, you know, uh, some genetic variation you have on something else. It's not a thing to be proud of because it's not related to actions you took. It's not a volitional thing. There's no there's no moral value to it. And I think it scares a lot of uh, people in that elitist class precisely because, well, without that, why should I be ruling and, and rich and in charge if, if I'm not superior? <laughs> like, <laughs> then what? 
Yeah, um, I agree. It's uh, so they want they want to be seen as superior because they um, they see themselves as being higher IQ, but they don't want to be seen as racist. So therefore, they must say that high IQ is not uh, high IQ is not different among race. There's no genetic difference. My, yeah. Do I have this right? <laughs> there are so many things that are just plain obviously cognitive dissonance on a massive scale that's going on in academia today. Um, not just academia, I would, I would broaden the set of people. It's what I call the, uh, uh, the new upper class in, in coming apart where they live their lives according to very conservative standards in many ways. They get married. They don't have babies out of wedlock. Uh, they are probably too passionately devoted to their children and just leave their kids alone a little bit more. But, but you know, they're good parents in that sense. They work long hours. They, they behave in all of these extremely traditional ways. And then in all of their public utterances on everything, they said, well, you can't say it's better to be married when you have children than to be single. Well, you, you know, you, you can't say that and they go through all the things that they will not make value judgments about where they very clearly have made value judgments in their own lives. In practice. In practice. Yeah. They do not preach what they practice. You know, since we're, since we're on hot button topics, a related topic here is uh, is dysgenic pressure, and it's something that I wish people would talk about more because we have this uh, we have this I think correctly moral understanding that eugenics is bad, bad, bad. Eugenics is bad. Uh, we don't have government push push eugenics, um, but we seem to not care if the government is doing things that are causing dysgenic pressure. Uh, and I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, because something that scares me, I mean, you've talked about the cognitive elite and separation of, of cognitive elite from the rest of the, I will say, the, the masses. And uh, I'm particularly concerned about dysgenic pressure because our problems are just going to get worse if we continue pushing dysgenic pressure on some of the population. And while the cognitive elite continue to intermarry and, and move the other direction. You are really asking for it. <laughs> I mean, even to raise this issue is is uh, you can now be officially labeled by the Southern Poverty Law Center as a eugenicist. I mean, you 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 can't take it back. You've already committed yourself. Look. Oh well. Carter's a, a big fan of the movie Idiocracy. I don't know if you've seen that movie, but we yeah. could just say. <laughs> let, let me just make a couple of comments about eugenics and dysgenics and so forth. The first is, I would say to all of my high IQ friends who have gotten married, uh, did you get married to, if you're a woman, did you get married to a really dumb guy because he was cute? No, you didn't. You got married to as smart a person as you could find, probably, or at least they had to be more than you are not going to uh, have a baby with somebody who's dumb. Because no matter what you say publicly about the heritability of IQ, you know in your heart that it's there. So the, the new upper class practices 
eugenics constantly in their own lives in trying to come up with the smartest, best babies they can come up with. The second thing is something Dick Hernstein and I said in the last chapter of uh, The Bell Curve that got me labeled as a eugenicist, would have gotten Dick labeled such if he lived. And that is, we said, you know what? When, when you subsidize births by, by uh, people who couldn't ordinarily afford to have babies and would have to get, would get married because they'd want to, young women who would get married because they wouldn't want to try to raise a baby on their own, all that, you are, in effect, having a, 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 a dysgenic intervention. You are encouraging the birth of babies. Forget about IQ. You're encouraging the birth of babies to, to situ- situations which are not going to be good for that baby in a variety of ways. And that's true. But the, well, here's the good news. The good news is dysgenic pressures aren't as bad as a lot of people think. They're there. But uh, birth rates have fallen dramatically, not only among the highly educated, they have also dropped substantially among people who aren't. Having said that, the dysgenic pressures are there. Nobody's ever going to change policy to stop that. Because to change policy would be to do a couple of things. One is that it would be, be very making very judgmental statements about, you know, it's really important children have a father as well as a mother. Uh, it's really important that people be emotionally mature enough to be parents, et cetera, et cetera. That's never going to fly. Uh, and it would also mean watching withdrawal of some kinds of support from young mothers, which nobody wants to see. I mean, nobody wants to see a baby suffering for something that the baby had nothing to do with. And that's a completely understandable human practice, a human response. I think that the way out of this is never going to be a policy change. I think the way out of this is going to be when people are once again comfortable saying to their own children, but also saying more broadly to the society as a whole, here are the arrangements under which children should come into the world. That's best for the children. And we are morally responsible, all of us, to do all we can to encourage people to make those decisions that lead to babies being born in those circumstances. It's got to be a moral an opening up of moral discourse where people are willing to make judgments that's going to help in this policy is never going to do a thing for it. Like a lot of things we talk about, it comes down to, it's, it's, it's not necessarily a problem for the government. It's a cultural problem. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I think that we are watching a nation right now that is consumed by cultural problems, not political ones. Yeah. And they've, they've, it's that they take the form of politics, but it's it's downstream from cultural polarization. Yeah, I mean, you've said that this. This brings me to another thing that I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, I'm usually the pessimist on the show, but I'm going to quote some stuff back to you. Uh, I think you've said the American experiment is doomed to fail and won't survive our children. Can you? expound upon that a little bit yeah yeah this was in a book um 
well, I've said it a couple of times, but it was in a book called By the People, where I'm saying, look, the American project, as I understand it, is the notion that people should be lived to, free to live their lives as they see fit, as long as they accord the same freedom to everyone else. And the government's role is to provide a safe environment for that enterprise and otherwise step aside, which is basically my way of thinking about libertarianism. It's, it's also a way of saying what the original Constitution was aiming for. That's dead. There is no aspect of American life in which you can be sure that nine justices of the Supreme Court would say, this is not the government's job. You are not permitted to enter this area uh, because the limits are gone. They went a long time ago. So it's dead in that respect. Uh, The good news is that there are lots of ways in which you can have de facto freedom in your lives. Unfortunately, those ways are available to people like us a lot more than they are to the poor, uh, to minorities, uh, to ordinary people. I mean, people like me can live where we want to live, in the kinds of neighborhoods we want to live in. We can send our kids to the children, uh, the schools we want to send them to. We have unparalleled access electronically to knowledge and to all sorts of tools that we take advantage of. And we can sort of buy our way out of a whole lot of the problems that poor people can't buy their way out of. Um, Once again, this is not a problem that's ever going to be fixed because the founders had it exactly right that you've got to put iron bands on the government to prevent it from ever getting into certain kinds of activities. Because if you don't have the iron bands, you will have factions, and those factions will slowly erode them. And uh, that's happened, and you can't get the bands back on again. Uh, The creation of the American Project happened at one historical moment when everything, all the stars came together. Um, And something happened that is unlikely ever to happen again in human history. That's maybe... Maybe that's a little bit too long-term pessimism. Do you think that, I mean, we're kind of far afield from the human diversity stuff, but it's still fascinating to me. Do you think that, um, do you think that could happen in a, like a lot of people are saying that we're in, we're, we're about to have a civil war. We're in a low level civil war. There's at least a cultural war happening if there's not a civil war on the horizon. I mean, do you think that there's a large enough subset of the population who, wants to support the original ideas of the founders and could break away and kind of keep the flame going, even if it's not in the 50 states? I spent the last four years watching all sorts of people who professed to hold have the same ideas I had about freedom and about the role of government and all the rest of that who have adopted agreement on policies I thought would outrage them and the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Forget about everything else, just about the spending. Yeah. Uh, but in all sorts of other ways, uh, I've reaching the end of my life really depressed about what's happened to the libertarian movement, libertarian of the small L. Limited, the limited government movement. That was a good-sized movement 
particularly in the 1990s, it looked like it was really gaining ground. And then you had uh, the bombing in Oklahoma City, which was just a, a huge event in terms psychologically, in terms of what it did to the advocacy for limited government. And uh, we never really recovered from that. And, and now we have Trump and we have proven how many sunshine patriots we had in the limited government movement. They're gone. And I don't see how in the future they can ever come back and espouse conservative slash limited government ideals without being terminally embarrassed, given what they have defended the last four years. I mean, you've Got said a little bit more partisan there than I did. No, no, no. I, I think, I mean, I could probably disagree a little bit with some of that only because I think not everyone that, well, I, I don't know, it's, maybe not. It depends on, I don't really support Trump, but uh, because I hate his policies, as you're saying. So I, I'm, I'm okay with, with that part of what you're saying. But I guess, um, I guess the, the question though is like, If if it's dead, <laughs> oh my God, this is so depressing. If it's dead, if there's re- like, I find a lot of people who who will espouse those ideas also and say like, well, I believe in limited government, but not when it's limited in a way that bothers me. I want the government, to, you know, I wanted to do X Y Z with the government. Um, do, do you think though that you know you said this kind of Breitbartian thing that the culture is upstream of, of politics and the problems of culture, which I, which, you know, I agree with and we talk about on the show a lot. Um, Trump is Trump's the only one at least fighting the, the cultural war against the social justice ideology. I think he's bad on basically all the other libertarian things and spending and everything. Like he's, he's horrible. He's not a libertarian. He's horrible. But, uh, I think a lot of people see an existential threat of like literal Marxists that want to take over the country. And he's kind of the only one standing up to them. Is that not accurate in your view? Yeah, I, I, there was no way in which anything I said was intended to be an endorsement of the other side. <laughs> and, and, and so much so that uh, I am looking at the problem of going into the ballot box and and uh, saying I don't have a candidate, in it, you know, uh, uh, the, the, because I, I, I never intended to get into politics. Uh, there are a variety of ways in which I'm glad Trump was president instead of Hillary. And there are a lot of ways that if Biden is elected, I'm scared stiff. So yeah. I think that, I think that we have to stop looking for a lot of our solutions to our problems in politics because we're yes. doomed to disappointment. And I think that there is a lot to be said at this point for focusing on our little platoons because a lot of those little platoons still work really well. I'm out here in a little town in Maryland. I've been for 30 years. It's a real community. It's one that Tocqueville would recognize. And we are not alone. I think the real cultural divide these days in this country is not between races. It's not even between Economic levels, you have lots of people who made lots of money out in Topeka and Peoria and uh, the heartland 
who would have a big house and have lots of money and also go down to the local bar and, and have beers with the guys uh, in work in the factory. You know, there are a lot of that. There's a lot of ways in which uh, a lot of America still functions in a very traditionally American way with communities solving their own problems with lots of mixing among people in, in the big cities. That's not true. Mm-hmm. And so I have very little hope for changing the nation. But all of us have who are lucky enough to have some resources anyway, have it within our power to choose little platoons that are very satisfying in some very traditional ways. I guess that's, that's what Car- <laughs> that's the optimism. Carter's Carter's looking for a, a place to build a medium-sized platoon where we can all relocate. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I could tell that's the question he was getting to is where should well, I, I mean, move? I, kind of, <laughs> I mean, not, not, I mean, look, I, I don't, I do, I do share the pessimism that the U S is beyond hope at this point. And I think you articulated well, the, you know, in the sense that the founders intended it to be as beyond hope. Right. Right. Um, and, and so, okay. Uh, the U S is just another nation state, uh, and how powerful it will be on the world stage is, is unknown. Um, but I do, I, but I do have, I, I don't know, maybe I, I do have, is it irrational optimism to say like, there are a lot of people maybe in the small towns who at least espouse some version of what you're talking about that, uh, I don't know, I, I, I'd love to have them separate somewhere. You, we all go to the same towns in the same spot and say goodbye to the rest of the United States. Well, just let me emphasize to you that we don't sit around in the town I live in talking politics either. Um, what we do is, and this is not a special town. It's very ordinary. We had a fire up the street where a family got burned up. The fire was not out uh, at the point at which all sorts of people in town had already taken all sorts of steps to help the people who had gotten burned out and things being being brought to local collection points for them. It was just this spontaneous, unorganized by all sorts of people in town, because this is what you do when one of your neighbors had a problem. And I'm sure a lot of them vote different ways and so forth. And that doesn't need to get in your way. That's one of the saddest things that I think right now is that if somebody's on the other side of the political fence, they must be evil as opposed to just disagreeing with you. And, uh, One of the most encouraging things, and maybe that's something we can conclude on, one of the most encouraging things that I get out of polling data is how few people pay any attention to politics. I mean, the numbers are really stunning of the number of Americans who live their lives and sort of a couple of weeks before the election say, well, I suppose I better figure out what's going on. I just love it. That's that's one of the few things which gives me hope that uh, those of us who spend our lives in the middle of this cauldron uh, that probably all three of us live in uh, should be, be should be an instructive lesson for us in how or how to live our own lives. I love that because people are busy living lives, of feeding their kids, going to work. They're yeah. not, yeah. Well, I think that politics deserves even less attention than that. So. 
the fact that it's low is good. And uh, yeah, I agree. That's not that's a that's some optimism. It's good optimism to end on. Um, Dr. Murray, I really appreciate your time. I won't keep you too much longer, but I I really appreciate your time and love your work. I now got to read some more books that I I found out that you wrote that I didn't read um, in the past. But um, yeah, I think you are uh, you're a very courageous and measured voice that I really wish people would pay attention to because you're bringing uh, science, the cutting edge science, not even always cutting edge, but the state of science to lay people in a way that's very careful, shouldn't be controversial, and everyone should be able to digest and read and understand. And uh, I, I really appreciate you for that. So, so thank you. I've enjoyed it a lot. Both of you. Appreciate it. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy, so go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the Cathedral. Pay no attention to it. For your protection, the following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and marked for cancellation. Please avoid any contact with these individuals. I have calculated a 94.9% .9 chance that their ideas are more contagious than COVID. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Remain calm. The new group of nine people will enforce the Constitution just as well as all previous sets of nine people have done. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.